This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we are going to have another exciting conversation on athletes' careers in high-performance sport, and in particular, in professional football. We know that the work lives of these athletes are uncertain, and it'll involve several threats, such as deselection or serious injury. What are the implications of the working conditions for these athletes' subjectivities, their career decision-making, and the relationship they have with sport. I'm delighted to explore these questions today with Dr. Colm Hickey. Colm received his PhD at Durham University and currently works at the University of Lausanne. His research has explored various topics, including workplace environments in sport, athletes' career transitions, and athletes' identity management in high-performance sport. Welcome to the podcast, Colm. I have been looking forward to our conversation. Yes. Uh, hi, Noah, and thank you very much for the really kind introduction and uh, the, chance to, the chance to speak with you today. It was really lovely to meet you some weeks ago, and, and I see that we share so many research interests and the careers of athletes are clearly one shared topic. And so career transitions is something that you've written quite a lot about, but actually your own career, your own life has been also quite full of transitions. So it would be nice to, as a beginning, just to hear a bit of uh, introduction to you, your journey and and your research. Yes. uh, Well, I think like so many scholars in our field, uh, when I was younger, I played as many sports as I could, not always well, (laughs) but I did my best. And I was fortunate to have the opportunity to experience and play a whole range of sports from from swimming and volleyball, football, basketball, even karate, uh, and then being and growing up in the northwest coast of Ireland, uh, in the ice cold waters, uh, surfing and kayaking, uh, and I'm pretty happy that I think I still have a passionate for a passion for all those things now. Um, as with many athletes, as I hit my teens and then all the way into my mid twenties, I devote a large portion of my time and energy in one sport and specializing in that sport. So that was basketball. Uh, And I did my very best to be, I say, an average elite athlete. But I competed at a national and international level. And again, I was fortunate that the whole way through my playing career, I was able to combine it with my uh, education. But it was really those early experiences of sport that led me to the decision to study what I was and what I still am really passionate about what is the passion of my life and so I started uh, with my undergraduate in sports studies and was pulled by this thing called the sociology of sport and and sports psychology but it was actually the sociology that really grabbed me and I think 
took hold <laughs> and kind of pulled me in that direction. And what I found was I was beginning to read more and more studies that investigated the experiences of athletes. Um, and while I would come to know this body of literature as extremely worthwhile and of a really high academic caliber, I felt that there, there was something there was something missing. And, and all of this and all these all these articles at the time they spoke about the daily grind about coping with injury. I mean, you mentioned it in in your introduction, mm -hmm. the de deselection. But still, I felt that there was something that wasn't speaking to my own experience or my own knowledge of of what it was like just simply existing in the day-to-day -day environment within elite competitive sport. And then fast forward, you know, uh, 10, almost 15 years now, I'm in Switzerland. I'm working at the University of Lausanne. Uh, and I think my research and what I try to investigate can be broadly categorized into three, you know, interconnected streams. So the first, and, you, and I think you mentioned them, but I'll, I'll go through them, was, is career transitions. So a career transitions from elite and professional sport. And I, I focused on on football, actually, because while it's, I think it's generally considered as the most culturally significant, if not financially significant, global sport. But that understanding the discourse within elite professional football from the shared experiences of those involved in it. So I was very lucky. I got to work with Premier League clubs, Premier League players, and, and additional support networks within, within that field. Uh, the second stream then is identity management. Um, so looking at how athletes and players construct, manage, and negotiate their identities. Uh, and here I try to utilize a framework that combines the work of Goffman, particularly his dramaturgical metaphor, with notions of possible selves, maybe a lesser known uh, a theory kind of established by Marcus and Uris, uh, kind of within social psychology. Uh, and I, I really like how these two work in partnership together and how it can help us understand the identity management that athletes have to undertake and go through. And then finally, as you said, was the, the work environment. So investigating the practices and discourses within sporting work, workplace environments. So how do individuals navigate such arenas and considering that both as athletes, as employees of these sporting organizations, but also actually the individuals working in the administration, the governments, the day-to-day -day operation of those sport and workplace environments. Because I think often maybe this is a field that isn't always talked about. And as individuals, they interact with the athletes and players and it's, it can provide a really interesting discourse. So I think broadly that's how I could introduce or define the three areas of my research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Let's start maybe from the broadest one. So the broadest one would be the context, the environment within which athletes are embedded. And you worked with uh, Martin Roderick and I had the pleasure to talk to him and he's obviously has done loads of work and done also these case studies. Um, for mm -hmm. example, looking at the cynical disidentification of some athletes when they realize that this culture and the work environment is quite not something that they can they can't align their values uh, with this environment. But so you've also in your work explored these environments and and uh, would be just lovely to hear your thoughts on how can we first put these athletes in the bigger context of sport work and how does it influence their their subjectivities? 
Yeah, I think speaking from my own research uh, and working with Martin, okay, there was a focus on professional football. And I think it's really relevant because, I mean, if we use the the UK example, the athletes or, or players start specializing in, in one sport so early, so, so early. In some cases, you know, eight, eight or nine years old. On average, uh, a player will dedicate nine years just within a scholarship program at not even a Premier League club, but it could be a championship, you know, going down through the levels. This is a huge dedication and early specialization and of children and, and young teenagers who are, are really quite vulnerable. And, you know, and there's this kind of accepted notion of the dream of making it, of, of fulfilling your dream, becoming a, a football star that, and why wouldn't any child kind of grow up idolizing a player? And I mean, we're all encouraged to dream and, and so many dream about making it. And, and really, I think young players start that journey towards working as a professional athlete and as an employee without realizing it. You know, they begin this journey because they love to play and, and sport is fun. And then as we transition through to maybe specialization and now they don't have time for other sports, they have to focus on, on this training all the time. Then it moves into the academy environment, which, you know, they start all the way until, you know, and they make a lot of sacrifices during this journey. Oftentimes social sacrifices, they see less and less with their friends. Many move away from home. They're living in in, as they call them in the UK, digs or, or quarters, they're housed by their clubs, they're away from their family, they're having to navigate quite adult experiences, you know, living in a group uh, away from home, cooking from themselves, when they're not adults, you know, they're, they're still teenagers. And to de dedicate such a huge part of their teenagers, or, or maybe, you know, late childhood into the teenagers, I mean, nine years and Recently, uh, we, the statistics brought out that it's zero point zero one two percent make it. You know, this is this is huge, and and they sold this this dream of you you do the right thing. You know, you train hard, you make the correct sacrifices, and then you sign your big contract, and then you can look after your you can look after your family, you can look after yourself, your self worth. It's all it's all wrapped up into this, and and there's this I think misconception that. Because, again, if we look at professional football, it's a team sport and many without, uh, many from outside of sport look at this as a team sport, the camaraderie, you know, sport in a very positive light. And it's true. Sport has many positive attributes and many people take a lot from sport. But often what you see within professional sport, especially professional team sport, and this is what I found in my research and alongside Martin as well, that these individuals move through this journey and uh, in a quite singular fashion. Uh, and it's understandable as employees, as workers, they're in a very vulnerable position. Their work is affected by the slightest injury, deselection, and they're competing against their teammates for playing time, but also for there's only so many contracts available and only so much money to go around. So they're very vulnerable as a workforce, as a labor force. They're very, very vulnerable and exposed to all sorts of risks that maybe the traditional workforce aren't. And I think that's where this, this the kind of like maybe the cynical nature that, that we, that Martin kind of talks about begins to, to creep in. They, they realize because they're not moving through this uh, without thinking. And I think it's a, a real misconception oftentimes people have notions of footballers. They think like, oh, they all earn loads of money and 
you know, they're not the brightest people and they are given whatever they want. In fact, they're very aware of what's happening in their environment and they're very aware of how vulnerable they are and how vulnerable their careers are. And there's lots of different steps or measures to either protect their own careers or to hide that vulnerability that they feel. And it's it's a real it's it's a tough one, I think, with like going down that path and and one that isn't supported enough. I don't think these young players really really move through their careers and not even young players. I mean, uh, those that are lucky enough to go on to have you know full professional careers, uh, and we don't fully address this. We think maybe we have this conception that they all earn a lot of money, live in big houses, uh, and everything's fine. When in fact, this is is not the case, and there's very little support in addressing them as more than footballers, as more than just uh, athletes on a pitch. You know, and I think that's oftentimes forgot these. These individuals are oftentimes parents, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers, their mothers, uh, and there is more to their lives, their identities, than their ability to to kick a ball. But throughout this career, this short career that they're trying to have against all the odds, that other side of their identity or their lives isn't really engaged with. Uh, and what's important is how they perform. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that as athletes get older and and many of them are actually quite critical and aware of all these things about the vulnerability and uncertainty of their work and perhaps some of them start to critically reflect on this notion that this is the best thing that could happen in your life if you make it and these are kind of the few ones who should be happy about their life and so what are then we can maybe call them strategies or how do these athletes then make sense of their situation and what are the ways that they then protect themselves? Yeah, of course, it speaks to something that uh, hopefully Martin and I will will publish uh, in the very near future in terms of how they perceive their careers and and face notions of loss. Or, I mean, Goffman describes it in his in some of his work in, in, in terms of cooling out the mark where they're Situational circumstances no longer support the identity in which they're presenting to themselves. And what we found, what was really interesting with with the players that we were speaking to, was this notion of making it. So players, the idea that players don't know that their release happens by surprise. You know, that the career ends by surprise. They're they're totally blown out of water. Mm -hmm. This is not the case. What we find is players are very aware of how their career is going, what might happen, when it's going to end, if they're all, if it's already ending. They know they know this. And therefore, their identity as professional footballers is no longer legitimized or might no longer be legitimized. So then what we see is some tactics about, well, what does it mean to really make it? So we were talking to players, or I was talking to players in uh, professional Premier League clubs who, who were there. Uh, and you would assume that, okay, you've, you've made it. Whereas in fact, to them, I haven't made it. Making it means that I'm playing week in, week out in the first team, which is only, you know, so many players, that I'm on TV and that I'm really making big money. I mean, the number of players who this actually happens is very, very small. So even though that they were there in this environment with the Premier League playing, training, they were they were justifying the their circumstances like well actually I've never really made it I've only played for the first team four or five times a season um, the next is then notions around justifications for reason or reasoning why they didn't make it 
Oftentimes, this could be injury, and we see that so many players experience. Uh, we had one player, um, and a, a lovely kind of sentiment was like, I was training in week in, week out, playing really well. I injured my ankle, and he could just never recover from that injury that every time he came back there was always a little tweak and then he was put back again so his body was 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 letting him down he hadn't failed but his body was was letting him down and then there is also the notion of justifiable loss reasoning from significant social others so the managers um, and one athlete uh, or one player talked about how until a new manager joined his career was great we were doing really really well I was playing really pushing for the first team a new manager comes and all of a sudden he doesn't like him. And the reasoning was very interesting. Uh, the, the new manager was a former manager, a former coach of an international team. And this player one day was wearing the jersey of a rival team. And from the very, very, from that day, the manager saw that jersey and the player perceived like, well, he didn't like me. And this was a reason I never got to play because the coaches didn't like me. I think there's all sorts of different means or, or justifications or strategies that the players use. Interestingly, we had a paper, that, again, that'll hopefully be published on, on banter and the notion of workplace humor. Uh, and we frame it almost, uh, well, we frame it as, as abuse, justifiable abuse in the workplace and justified by the means of, well, we're only joking. And an interesting element within that paper came from the idea of the stitch up, as players called it, the stitch up. So I'm competing against another player for the same position on the team. Now, in training, I know that I should give him the ball. You know, I, I have to pass it to him or and me and my, my mates or those that I'm friendly with. We give him the ball. We pass it to him, but we ensure we pass it to him with too much weight or too much force so he can't control it. So therefore, it's perceived that I've done the right thing. I've passed the ball to, to, to my teammate, this player, but he doesn't have the skill to to control it so he looks bad in front of the coaches so this small little microaggression this this action is a, another one of this, these techniques again that i mean i i was nowhere aware about and you think okay in isolation that's just one time but if a week of training and three people or three individuals are always ensuring that i'm looking bad that's going to have a knock-on effect on my career but the justification is this is a, a dog-eat-dog environment. And if someone looks bad, that means I look good. And that better puts me in a better position to, uh, to be selected and, and secure, my, uh, secure the kind of future of my career. So I think the, the tactics or strategies of individuals to try to sustain these professional careers or sustain their identities within these environments, are there's a variety of them that fit very traditional notions of identity management uh, and identity negotiations and, and how they justify these circumstances that no longer support their identities as footballers. And then there's a, a, another set of strategies or tactics that are, I don't want to use the word deviant, um, but are definitely maybe the darker side, the, the smaller, small uh, death almost by a thousand cuts that uh, players can use to to put others in a, a worse professional position in mm -hmm. terms of perception at the, at the least. Right. Yeah, I, what I picked up at the beginning, um, you talked about athletes actually being really aware of where they are, what is their standing, what are their future prospects. And 
you've mentioned doing sports psychology as well as a part of your studies and typically you would classify these transitions as voluntary or involuntary mm -hmm. or kind of expected and unexpected transitions and then deselection and injury are these unexpected turning points and this is why it's difficult for athletes because they couldn't anticipate that this will happen but what you're saying is that actually in many cases in this deselection in the situation athletes are pretty much aware for quite a long or at least some time before that this is one quite real prospect of what what might happen yeah. to them i think so uh, our experience like my experience from talking to players is that they're acutely aware of the interactions between players and coaches and what those interactions mean so i said in their preparation for Uh, signing their their first professional full-time professional contract there there's nine years of training and that oh yes that's training on the pitch but that's also training in the environment of professional sport being in and around the locker room on the training pitch dealing with coaches dealing with players they players see other players being injured they see what it means to be out of uh, rotation for selection because of injury. They know that that can happen to them. They also know what it means when the slightest comment from a, what a, what the slightest comment from a manager might mean or coach, or what the slightest comment from a teammate might mean. It's this interplay of small discourses, interactions. Uh, I mean, Goffman talks about the dramatic realization of our performances. What, and players are acutely aware of of how each other exist in this environment and and what those slightest things mean uh, and oftentimes they know they know what it is okay that they know or to expect that yeah this career is is ending or my time at this club is ending and there's lots of small little actions and performances that indicate that to them along the way uh, and and they recognize them and they're able to to recognize them and they know what they mean. I think what's hard for players is then what do they do next or what sense to make of that understanding. Uh, and I, that's where I think uh, organizations and clubs can do a much better job in, in supporting athletes and, and players in their holistic development, you know, uh, helping to develop them as full people so that when this release happens, when this career ends, that There's more to that individual than the athletic identity that they, they've developed for so long. And I think we can do a much better job in, in, in supporting those other identities um, because they exist within. I mean, it's a critique within some uh, that I would have of some sports psychology that this notion of the uh, exclusive athletic identity, I don't think really addresses the nuances of, of the self, our understanding of the self. And as I mentioned, these Athletes or players are, are, are more than just, you know, their ability to kick the ball, their fathers, their mothers, their, their other hobbies they might have, whether it's music or reading or racing cars. Or we spoke to one, um, one player and his grandfather was an engineer and he loved looking at bridges. <laughs> It was really, <laughs> and uh, I remember actually interviewing him and he was telling me about this, uh, all the different bridges that were in our location and, Um, yeah, and he had this whole other side to him that he wasn't always able to express within that football environment. And I think we, I think just by like by legitimizing those those other identities, we go a long way in supporting athletes and promoting a smoother transition uh, in helping their their exit from sport or exit from elite and professional sport. 
Mm-hmm. And this can be also partly due to what kind of questions we are asking as researchers. Are we trying to, like this interest and fascination in bridges might not be something that the researcher actually <laughs> asks <Yeah>. about. <laughs> so if we are really asking just for tell me your story in sport, then the athletes might also think that we are not interested in these other stories, so they will just omit that. And then we might get a comp- like a very one-sided yes. um, view on who they are. And it can be also a big part because they think that this is not what we are interested in hearing about yeah. as researchers. Yeah, I think as researchers, I think you hit the nail on the head. As, as researchers, we, we, have to cr- we have to be aware. I think especially in dealing with professional athletes, they're so used to, and elite athletes, from, and as we said, from a young age, they're so used to um, offering an expected performance. You know, this is what I as an elite athlete or I as a professional footballer should say. Because in in many instances, whether they're being interviewed or, you know, for mainstream media or something that it is, you know, it kind of protects them. It's a protective shield. And it's our job as researchers, I think, to to if we're interested in their identity and their well-being, to allow them a space to to talk beyond that. But it's a challenge as a researcher. No, I I mean... I, I, I mean, many researchers talk about it, but like the job we have to do to ensure that athletes feel comfortable and safe in a discussion where we can maybe break past, not that, and I don't want to say that that, that self or that performance isn't authentic, mm-hmm. but there are multiple authentic selves or multiple authentic identities that, that these individuals have. Um, yeah. And it's our role as a researcher in thinking about innovative methodology uh, and and new ways in in tapping into that and helping you know which w- helping athletes who are uh, sometimes a very hard to reach sample in, in talking about some subjects that are quite sensitive maybe to them. But my experience was that when that space is given uh, and once we open that door, athletes are and players were very comfortable and and really willing to share and wanting to be listened to and. I mean, while it helped, obviously, my research, I think if this was instilled within um, within organizations, it, it goes a long way in helping the players as well. Yeah. And you talked earlier, if we go back to this workplace banter or these microaggressions and how somehow everybody's just there for themselves. And if the others are doing badly, that's in some ways good for you. So what does it do for these athletes relationships in these environments must be quite difficult to then form friendships and you've also talked to athletes who then disengaged or were deselected do they maintain any relationships to this environment or is it just kind of the work environment and then they move on and and their kind of uh, real or deeper relationships are then have to be found from outside I think it's a really interesting, interesting area uh, when we when we talk about their uh, relationships. So most of my or the research revolving around identity management and kind of the workplace environments of professional footballers, they were they were male players. Uh, we, we've since done a lot of work with female football, but in this particular area, and if we look at it, these are hyper-masculine, often toxic masculinity is, is, is a big uh, big element within the changing room. Not, not always, 
and players have to learn how to perform. And, and with that comes they learn what a friendship is from these environments. So if we if we think about if an individual has been in the same changing room or similar changing rooms and similar club environments from the age of you know 13 until they're 22, well, the way they're told or the way they learn to be friends or uh, establish relationships with other male counterparts or other employees is is through these social others, through those that have come before them, through those that are going through their experiences with them. And because athletes move very singularly, um, it's oftentimes not a very healthy relationship. They have friends, there's no doubt they have friends in the club, but ultimately, I mean, one talked about, it's almost when someone is released that we don't talk about that person again because we're still here and we have to keep striving to maintain our competitive place within within this club and within this team. When athletes do leave that area, yeah, it's 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 really difficult following their career transition, establishing new relationships because oftentimes with individuals outside of their sporting environment, outside of football, they were known as the footballer. And those individuals interact with the athlete in the the way they know how. So they want to talk about football. They want to we had one athlete talk about how his grandparents for years after he had finished playing still were asking him, well, you know, how's training going? When are you going to make it back? You know, when are you going to come back? And and some players were able to navigate that quite well with the support of their family and again significant social others. And others really struggled. They really struggled with being confronted daily with, well, I thought you were a footballer, but you don't have a club anymore, so what even are you? And these relationships are are, are a real challenge for, for many of those players. And there's, I mean, a lot of research about not just footballers, but athletes as they transition out and exit from sport, you know, the issues dealing with anxiety. So we had it like in a UK study alone, when athletes exit sport, 46% deal with, uh, or exit from elite sport, 46% deal with issues of anxiety. It goes, you know, more with depression. Also, like we said, uh, issues with establishing meaningful relationships uh, and supportive relationships. Then in saying that, I think there are individuals that move through these professional environments who can have a really impactful, meaningful relationship with players. So most recently, we're writing about the role of education and welfare officers within clubs. So these individuals, normally, I mean, sometimes the roles are combined in both education and welfare. Sometimes they're separate within uh, clubs. And oftentimes it depends on how financially viable a club is, whether they're able to pay someone to, to be in this position. Um, uh, and this individual is there to support the kind of well-being and welfare of, of the players. And oftentimes what we find is during a player's career, they don't engage with this support because to do so is seen as like, well, you know, I need to focus on football. And, you know, the manager will see me engaging with someone. And maybe if I express some vulnerability to this person, it'll be reported back to them. We see this as one of the uh, deterrence for athletes engaging with team sports psychologists often it's like well you know they're not independent they're working for the manager the manager is going to tell them that I have issues with my confidence and it's going to hurt my playing time right. but when those individuals have the freedom 
or the independence to work from the manager, from the coaching staff, given that, okay, yes, they have to work with them on a daily basis. But when players see them as independent, often at times it's the careers and players revisit those relationships. And what we find is that just when individuals are able to have those meaningful relationships with social significant others within their professional environment, especially at the end, and when those significant others can legitimize, like what we said, the alternative identities or the other selves that individuals have outside of sport, that goes such a long way. And, and we see a really marked difference in their career transition and how smoothly that individual can navigate an exit or transition to something else, something new, and how more easy it is for those individuals to have and establish new or reconnect with previous relationships outside of football. So I think there's a real, a real space for us to recognize athletes as more than just athletes as part of their career. And at the end, to really uh, encourage this, this kind of uh, positive reflection on their career and, uh, and an opportunity to re-engage or engage with new uh, relationships. Yeah, and you mentioned this variously called personal development or welfare officers or different job titles, but these would be also increasingly uh, part of youth, but also senior uh, professional sport uh, teams and environments. This is certainly a positive development, but as your work shows, loads, loads also remains to be done. So... But thank you so much for for the conversation so far. Let's have a tiny break and uh, then we'll move on to the second part. So thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.